The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We shouldn't, as Democrats, be empowering the Republicans. President Trump was sent here to smash conventional norms. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Governor Larry Hogan promises caution as he looks to reopen the economy. We're going to check in with the chairman of the Republican Study Committee. This... As he says, they've got some type of rubric for how to reopen the economy. Don't miss that exclusive interview now. Uh, and we're also going to check in with Jason Greenblatt, an exclusive interview that I did with the former U.S. Special Envoy to the Middle East and the Trump administration. He's got a column out in the Jerusalem Post saying that the Israelis and Palestinians have been playing nice with each other as it relates to the COVID-19 response. And we are still on standby for that Daily Coronavirus Task Force briefing. They weren't going to have it. Now they are going to have it. Josh Winger, Bloomberg White House reporters, going to break down the latest. We are on standby for the 5.30 p.m. Eastern Daily Coronavirus Task Force briefing. You can listen to that right here on Bloomberg 99.1. Jam-packed show. Josh Wingrove is on the line. Bloomberg's White House reporter. Josh, I thought that there wasn't going to be a presser. Now there is a presser. What's, what's the... Before we dive into the policy, what was going on all day with that there will be, there won't be a presser? Yeah, there have been signals that they're trying to, you know, um, turn around the way they're doing their messaging. And so I guess they canceled the regular press conference, the one that's been going daily in the briefing room. And instead, the president is going to go out into the Rose Garden. Sounds like he'll be flanked by retail CEOs from Walmart and others, and they're going to talk about testing, it looks like. So it looks like he's trying to pivot to talk more about the economy. So he's going to be – he met with the retailers. Last week we had uh, uh, Jay Timmons on, National Association of Manufacturers. The manufacturers, obviously a part of this too. And, you know, I guess what I want to know is at a time when all of the states, Maryland, for example, Mayor Bowser in D.C., grappling with uh, – you know, various reopening plans, it's it's really going to be up to these to many of these retailers to 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 administer many of the tests and ultimately vaccines several months from now. But each state and each region is on a very different timetable. Uh, absolutely. And remember, they had planned or pitched, I suppose, over a month ago that we would have drive through testing in Walmarts or what have you, targets maybe. And, you know, we just haven't had that. And so that gut check has to apply to whatever they announced today. You know, and the, the White House began the day by saying that they have data showing that the virus spread rate is different, uh, but shrinking in counties that have been working this whole time, say a county with an essential factory, you know, where folks have been kind of going about their daily business relatively normally, as compared to a normal county that's been shut down. And they're, they're saying that that is justification or footing to take these steps to open up as many states have started to do. But of course they haven't actually shared that data and they're not uh, sort of providing any detail on it. So, you know, a lot of questions are hanging over this whole thing. 
So, I mean, as Governor Hogan, by the way, did you see this with Mayor Bowser, that former First Lady Michelle Obama could aid in the, D- in the D.C. reopening? The Washington Post reporting that D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser is recruiting high-profile individuals, including Michelle Obama and celebrity chef Jose Andreas, to assist in the coronavirus response effort, this according to WAPO. Uh, and the group is also going to be led by Susan Rice. Susan Rice! And Andreas is going to, you know, Susan Rice was Barack Obama's national security advisor. How's that going to play with 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? (laughs) Good question. I I suspect we'll see some tweets about that. But, you know, like I I think that it's a notable signal from D.C., which, of course, is one of the most, you know, Democrat-heavy communities in the country, that they're starting to pivot towards that. I think it shows that politicians on the left are under pressure, too, to chart some kind of path even as governors and other leaders uh, in the Republican Party are, are just sort of running a bit more headlong into it. Missouri, for instance, announced that in a week or so, pretty much all businesses are, are able to reopen under certain conditions. So, you know, we're seeing things sort of take step-by-step uh, approaches. But, yeah, Susan Rice is not a name that I expected to be coming off the bench, but here we are. It's remarkable, and I'm not sure that it's going to make uh, make Mayor Bowser have <laughs> Any friends in the White House uh, with 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 this dynamic, especially though it's been fascinating to watch our our local politicians in the D.C. region, from Governor Hogan, Mayor Bowser, Governor Northam, all spanning the different ideological political spectrum, and to have them, you know, really elevate, so to speak, uh, their stature in in the middle of all of this. It's been really fascinating to watch. Uh, just one final question for you before I let you go, and that is specifically. What's what is the White House's reaction been to uh, to Georgia as Georgia has reopened and, and, and increasing protesters in, in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan as protesters are urging pe- for the, the lawmakers to reopen the economy? I mean, yeah, I mean, Trump is going back and forth, back and forward with Georgia. Um, he did take aim today at Democrat governor states saying that he doesn't think that the feds should have to bail them out uh, for in his view, mistakes on that. So, you know, there's a bit of a political lens on that. I think we'll hear more, obviously, in about 20 minutes or so. Uh, but, you know, I think the, the president has really, after taking heat for saying that it's up to him, uh, has really handed it off to governors. And in some cases, has handed some of the tougher, fuzzier decisions off to governors. And so I think as he's trying to sort of lead the charge, while leaving governors in a position to have to field any blowback that could come from if we open too early or aren't cautious enough or see that second wave take hold. All right, Josh uh, Winger, Bloomberg White House reporter, thanks so much for making time for us ahead of the president's daily coronavirus task force briefing. You can listen to that right here at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. Meanwhile, while it's not just governors who are announcing frameworks to reopen the economy, the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest caucus of conservatives in the House of Representatives, has presented uh, both Speaker Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell with the with their conservative framework for recovery account. Accountability and prosperity, the RSC as it's called, is adapting more than a year of internal RSC policy development to provide Congress with a solutions-oriented blueprint to lead America through COVID-19. It's interesting, folks, because this is uh, such a crucial caucus in the House of Representatives, and so they are also, um, you know, going to be 
on the front lines of negotiating uh, with uh, Speaker Pelosi and whatnot uh, for this. So I'm very, very grateful to have the chairman of the RSC, Chairman Mike Johnson of Louisiana's 4th Congressional District, joining us on the telephone line. Uh, chairman Johnson, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us about this 37-point blueprint. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, it's our honor. This is an important time for the country, as you know, and we need principled leadership. And, and the Republican Study Committee is the largest caucus of conservatives in Congress, uh, 148 members in the House. And we've all been wringing our hands, as so many of the American people have. We're concerned about the growing debt. We're concerned about this unprecedented crisis we're in. And we know that the same trusted principles, the core principles we have in this country, that's our conservative uh, principles that have guided the country since the time of its founding are going to be the things that guide us through this. And so we issued this framework today, this 37-point proposal. It's comprised of five different pillars, and that represents the work of our five policy task forces that have been in operation for more than 15 months prior to the pandemic. And um, we, we released that today to the House and Senate leadership. Um, it's a, kind of a comprehensive uh, framework, a blueprint, if you will on how to to lead us through this thing and get about the recovery of this country and its economy because um, that's the only way we're going to be able to salvage what we have and so, preserve our liberty. So one of the one of the most important parts of of the plan is is holding China accountable. So tell talk to me specifically right. about how the United States can hold China accountable. Yeah, really important point right now and that's one of our task forces is the National Security and Foreign Affairs Task Force. So that pillar of our of our framework today includes 10 recommendations to hold the Chinese government accountable. Now, we know that they have engaged in some very harmful actions. They have operated in bad faith, and um, and that's made the pandemic what it is. And so we really believe that there's some responsibility that they have to take for those harmful actions. So we, among the recommendations there, we would authorize sanctions against any foreign official who's found to have been involved in a, in a cover-up of this thing. Um, we would um, we would end all visas for Chinese government officials and their immediate family members. You know, they come to the U.S. routinely for education and leisure and all these purposes. Uh, but we think China ought to retract their, their ridiculous statements actually blaming the U.S. for the pandemic and for the COVID-19 virus. Bef- right, before they can, those, those visas should be continued. And uh, other ideas to press the Chinese government to permit access to to China uh, for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control Prevention, the CDC. I mean, they, they can't adequately respond to this unless we have valid and accurate information. And so we need them to open the door, so to speak, and allow that to happen. And then uh, undertake a congressional probe of the World, Ho- World Health Organization. I mean, the WHO, in its response to this pandemic, its relationship with China, have raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of questions, and we think we need to get to the bottom of that. You so know, these maybe... are just a, a few of the things that we think need to happen. Chairman Mike Johnson's on the line. He's a Republican uh, from uh, Louisiana's 4th Congressional District, chairman of the Republican Study Committee. And I'm focusing on the China portions um, because I think it's interesting. And, and I think as a journal, as journalists, uh, you know, there's there there were three uh, Chinese journalists who went missing. One of the thing your plan, one of the points on your plan is to investigate that uh, as well. Uh, but there's this other um point as it relates to China, which is to undertake a congressional probe of the World Health Organization in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, to, how, how will that work? Because I think there's a lot of confusion, and we talk about it basically every day on this program, Congressman, but how would that work? Who has the lead to investigate the World Health Organization? Is it Congress? Is it the State Department? Who has jurisdiction on that? 
Well, Congress has uh, a um, jurisdiction there, and we think that there ought to be a probe. Now, some of these other uh, agencies within the executive branch of, of the government ought to be doing that as well, we would argue. But um, but we think that our, our role in that is a really important one as well. And so we could undertake a, a, a probe of the WHO. I think it's it's um, something we owe the American taxpayers and build off the, uh, what President Trump's already done. You know, he has a this funding freeze idea that, that we base future federal funding decisions on the results of what we find out with these investigations. Um, and, and we need new reforms there. Uh, we, we need some further independence there. We need transparency. We need accountability at the WHO. And I think there's a rising call for that among the American people because this, this pandemic has, has put on naked display, I think, some of the problems there. And uh, I think it's a growing frustration for a lot of people. So we just have a couple more minutes left. And we talked about the national security components of this. But there's another portion of this uh, about the gig economy. And, and clearly, America has, has really had a reckoning of sorts over the past several weeks, as we all now have seen in real time uh, just how much the gig economy impacts uh, the U.S. larger economic system as a whole. Uh, the GIG Act, tell us about what the GIG Act would do and how that would work, uh, because it would essentially allow for a GIG uh, employee or a GIG worker to be treated as an independent contractor and not as an employee. That's right, and that would be a change in, in uh, existing law and, and policy. This comes under the the, uh, the framework of our American Worker Task Force that has worked for over a year. We were developing a comprehensive publication that was expected to come out uh, the early part of April before the pandemic hit. But that's that's one of the bills that we had featured in that that uh, program, and we, we've issued it today because it creates a safe harbor for these gig economy workers to, as you said, qualify as independent contractors because um, in so many cases – uh, people who are engaged in gig workers, and these are like, uh, you know, musicians, for example, that, that would play music in a bar on the weekends or uh, just any variety of te- persons who have those types of jobs. They're, they're sort of amorphous. They're kind of hard to pin down. And in, in so many cases, under for income and employment tax purposes, they've not been given uh, validity. And there's no way to for them really to account for that. So this would allow for them to be treated um, like reality, like they are, like they serve us uh, so many functions in the economy, and that's an important thing. But we've got other components there as well. We talk about promoting worker upskilling opportunities. You know, we want to allow businesses to deduct their investments in education services for all those employees out there that want to seek career advancement. They want to get the next level on the rung, so to speak. We ought to be incentivizing that. And uh, we want to encourage states to eliminate unnecessary employment barriers as well. You know, this occupational licensing requirement that we have in so many areas of the economy in many states, um, that that needs to go away. I mean, we have healthcare workers uh, who should be able to work across state lines, but they're not allowed to do that right now. And at a time of a pandemic, that brings that into focus. And so there's a lot of changes, I think, that would make sense from a free market standpoint. Would not require additional taxes, and in many cases, it would reduce them, and it would reduce the size and scope and the the power of the government that really interferes in so many aspects of the economy. We think now's the time to do this, Congressman. Do you think that any of this will gain traction with your Democratic colleagues, and if so, specifically which portions? Yeah, I think there's a lot of ideas in here that are just common sense proposals, and I think that we. China stuff seems to be. The China yeah, stuff that's in right. particular. Go ahead. There does. Um, but, you know, I, I'm on the president's um, task force for the reopening uh, America, and um, there's 32 members of Congress on that, 22 Republicans, 10 Democrats. 
the the de- Democrats that are on that committee, I believe that we're all uh, in one accord in that we need to get the economy revved up again. Everybody recognizes that, no matter where they are on the political spectrum. So we're bringing solid, common-sense solutions to the table for dialogue and discussion, and I believe that that discussion will be fruitful, and I hope we'll have some open minds about this, because this is no time for partisan politics. And people are going stir-crazy, and and we all know the importance of social distancing, and Louisiana, mind you, has extended this, your state has extended the stay-at-home order until May 15th, but from, from where you sit, I mean, how do you balance the science with the economic, or as the president says, you know, you don't want the the, the social distancing to be worse than the coronavirus itself. How do you balance that? Because so many people are hurting economically right now. And I don't need to go on a soapbox. I mean, clearly, you know that Democrats know that Republicans know that everyone sees that. But how do you find that balance, especially now as people are staring down two to four more weeks of this? Yeah, it's it's devastating for us in Louisiana because we have the a one-two punch, really. We have the, the pandemic, and then we have the effectual crash of the oil and gas market, yeah. which is a, a critical component of our state's economy. Uh, we have small businesses that are literally dying on the vine right now. They don't have weeks to go for this. And so I've been very aggressive in, in talking about this reality and the necessity of us protecting lives and livelihoods at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive pursuits. We can do this. It's, again, the application of common sense. We can trust small business owners to um, to apply social distancing standards in their in their businesses, that, that, you know they'll have to innovate some of them, be creative, but they can do it. That we can we can institute sanitation protocols. I mean, this is not rocket science. But if you keep businesses closed down like this for these extended periods, many of them will not come back, and we won't have people with jobs to go back to. And that is the greatest threat, in my view, to long term public health. I mean, the, the the left has always said the greatest threat to public health is poverty, right? And, and what we're going to do now is doom more and more people to poverty. And, and the long-term consequences of this, I, I think, is, is difficult to calculate right now. So, I, look, I'm on the, I mentioned I'm on the president's task force to reopen America. It's a three-phase plan. I think it's a common-sense plan, and I think every state needs to begin it as soon as possible. All right, final question for you, just because you brought it up in terms of oil and gas. I had Secretary Roulette on the other week, and we were, we were talking to him about the impact that the Saudis in particular have had on this. Are you disappointed at how the Saudis have been reacting and, to, to, and, and playing their, their cards here in the past couple of weeks? It, it's uh, unconscionable, and, and I think they've truly taken advantage of a situation. We feel like we've been kicked while we're down, and, and you know we've given a lot and done a lot for the Saudis over the years, and yep. we, we deserved and, uh, better. And, and so I, you know the president, I think, is ready to be very aggressive on that. He's already shown some indications of it. We need it desperately because we cannot lose. We, we, you know, his rally cry for us when he got elected was we weren't talking about energy independence anymore. We were talking about energy dominance, and we had gotten to that point, and then this hit us. And now these so-called, you know, friends and allies and trading partners of ours, uh, you know, jump on and pile on when we're down. It's, it's um, we really need to address it. And I hope the, the White House will address it aggressively. All right. Congressman Mike Johnson, chairman of the Republican Study Committee of Louisiana's 4th Congressional District. Thanks so much for joining us uh, to break down that framework that they just released today. Again, that's the Republican Study Committee's framework. And he, of course, is a, a member of the president's uh, coronavirus tax force to reopen the economy. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. 
join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Take a listen to my interview, Sticking with Geopolitics, that I had with Jason Greenblatt, former Trump administration uh, top official for the U.S. Middle Eastern Special Envoy. The piece was published in Hebrew, in Israel Hayom, English in Jerusalem Post, and Arabic in Al Jazeera because people were fascinated by the piece. In fact, I got a call from the president of the state of Israel, President Rivlin, about the piece. And what it highlights is that the Israelis and the Palestinians in the region really share a trench in this battle against the invisible deadly enemy. And they recognize that, and they want to work together. More importantly, they need to they need to work together, and they recognize this in order to fight against it and prevent it from coming back or handling it when it comes back. You outline this in your piece, but what are some of the ways that the Israelis and the Palestinians have worked together on combating COVID-19? Well, their security cooperation has been strengthened. The Israeli government has given Palestinian healthcare worker professionals training. They've sponsored joint workshops. Both sides are exchanging information together. The Israelis have given a lot of protective gear to the Palestinian healthcare workers and security personnel. Palestinian workers who normally come in in droves to the Israeli side for money, which is essential for their economy, um, are able to now stay longer in Israel <clears throat> to make sure that they don't bring the virus back into the Palestinian territories. So there's a tremendous amount of cooperation. That was Jason Greenblatt. He was the former Trump administration's special envoy to the Middle East. You can hear my full interview with Jason Greenblatt and what else uh, he's been working on on the Bloomberg Sound On Extra podcast. Get that on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Radio.com, and of course the Bloomberg Business app. Coming up, we check in with Guy Snodgrass sticking with how Israelis and Palestinians are working together. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. How's everybody doing? It's Monday, new week, social distancing still in effect. We're listening, we're waiting rather, for President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing, which you can listen to right here on Bloomberg 99.1 FM. We're expecting that. In the next, in this half hour, I'm, I'm, if you hear me, I'm not stretching. I'm, I'm looking for the clock. Uh, we're expecting that uh, right here in this half hour. Uh, joining us on the telephone line, it's a friend of the program, Guy Snodgrass. Guy, I got to be honest. So I did some rearranging over the weekend. I was, I was listening to my Stoic podcast. I was reading my Daily Stoic. You know, I was getting in my meditative state, my Zen, my calmness. Take a deep breath. There's only so many walks you can go on for a day. But I, I rearranged some of the uh, uh, the home office. <laughs> I don't. There's only. Uh, I, 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 never mind. Uh, but pretty much my setup now, Guy Snodgrass, a former chief speechwriter at the uh, uh, at the Defense Department of Defense uh, for Secretary Mattis. You know, for, it, I now have to do. I don't know if you ever saw Mission Impossible. I assume you have, given your background as a former fighter pilot. Uh, but you know the scene where he's got to like go under the lasers, the red lasers. <laughs> That's me, ladies and gentlemen, every single day <laughs> getting into my, my, I don't even know if you can call it an office. It's like a, 
It's it's like a mix of the lasers and there's there's like jungle gym domes that kids play on where they like swing from it. It's like that. That's what I get in. How's your home office, guy? You know, it's it's uh, looking really nice. I've got a bunch of uh, uh, basically looking at all sorts of insulation I've been putting up. I kind of work out of my uh, basement. I'm refinishing it right now. That's where I'm talking to you from. All right. All right. And just uh, as if I interrupt you, uh, just so that people know, uh, uh, we're awaiting President Trump's daily coronavirus task force briefing. So let me get your take in terms of give us an update on how the military uh, has been uh, reacting to this as top executive officials are are trickling out uh, into the White House Rose Garden. Sure. So I think, you know, it's it's a constant sense of just being aware of where are the hotspots, right? I mean, there's been some shifts in the news. We've talked previously about the USS Theodore Roosevelt still pierside in the U.S. territory of Guam as they're taking a look at uh, trying to get that ship rehabilitated, the sailors healthy and back out to sea again. You've had other ships in the U.S. Navy in particular, yeah, that are starting to pop some cases as well. So there's a lot of, you know, whether it's the Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps, or Coast Guard, you're just taking a close look at what's going on. And I think I'm watching what you're watching, and I'm seeing some people trickling out as well here. Well, we got time because the president's not out there yet. So as you look at that, and, and, and I was struck by this because I, I spoke with Jason Greenblatt earlier today, and he, of course, uh, had worked for President Trump in the private sector at the Trump Organization and then was his uh, top lawyer official uh, as a, an advisor for Israel. But he made this point that there, are, are, there have been hopeful instances of the Israelis and the Palestinians working together. There have been some blemishes, but for the most part, there there's some signs of positivity. Well, you know, look, I mean, that's that's the nature of something like this, like the like the coronavirus pandemic, that is there's a benefit. And that a lot of times people can put aside longstanding differences, come together as a community, whether that's here at home in the United States or abroad uh, in the Middle East and elsewhere where you say this is the most important thing. And so where you can find common ground, it's important to recognize that and make the most of that opportunity. So as you look in terms of where the U.S. is is heading, and there were some reports today with troops overseas in Afghanistan, for example, sticking in this region, um, about how the president is growing increasingly concerned about protecting our troops overseas in countries where there isn't the the medical infrastructure to protect against uh, coronavirus. What are some things that the government can do to, to protect our troops from the uh, from from it, who are stationed overseas in in parts of the world without that lacking that medical infrastructure. Sure, and I think the biggest thing you can do, whether you're overseas or you're a member of the armed forces or you're here domestically, it's what the White House and the administration's already put out. The CDC, um, it's practicing good hygiene, making sure you're washing for 20 seconds with soap and water on your hands. It's making sure you've got those uh, face coverings. You limit your exposure to the indigenous population. So wherever you are. Right. around the world. And there's been articles recently, whether it's Japan or South Korea, have been two yeah. nations that are outside, of course, the Middle East, where they're right. talking about... Um Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.